Well, good evening. If you would turn your Bible uh, to Genesis chapter 5. Thank you, Adam. Regen, musicians, blessing us again, preparing us for the worship of sing, the preaching of the word. You may think after these last week and this week that I'm just the genealogy preacher. Uh, but we do believe that all scripture is profitable, including the genealogies. Let's ask the Lord to show us how this genealogy is profitable to us this evening. Lord, thank you that your steadfast love is indeed satisfying to our souls. We pray that you would satisfy us this evening through the preaching of this word. And even, Lord, as we consider this genealogy, uh, we thank you for the promise that all Scripture is profitable and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And we pray that you would do just that tonight with this inspired text. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I, I read a book, a biography on Andy Griffith and Don Knotts, a must-read for all Andy Griffith fans, and I learned that when Andy started the show, the Andy Griffith show, they only planned to go five years, which means that they never had any kind of grand story that connected all of the, the episodes together, which means if you watch Andy Griffith, there's a lot of contradictions in those shows. So, for example, Barney Fife, through the course of those years, has three different middle names. Andy has three different home addresses, even though he has not moved. He does not move during the entire uh, uh, show. On some occasions, Barney says it's 12 miles to Mount Pilate. On other occasions, Andy says it's an hour's drive. In their first class reunion in the show, Andy and Barney graduated in the year 1945. In the second class reunion in the show, they graduated in the year 1948. Also, you have in some episodes, Gomer can't sing. And in other episodes, Gomer is a world-class singer, maybe as good as Adam. Uh, there are various cars in the show that have the same license plate number, DC 269. These are just a small sample of the contradictions that you will see in that otherwise perfect show that only lasted eight years. <clears throat> but examples like this drive home how remarkable it is us, to us that we can have a God-breathed canon that was written over the course of 1,500 years versus eight years of Andy Griffith, 1,500 years with over 40 authors, and yet with complete continuity, complete consistency. Only God could do that. Indeed, it's a story of generation, that is, God creating, God generating all things good 
a story of degeneration where all things go bad because of human sin and then the story of regeneration that will center on one offspring, one family line that will come, as we will see tonight, through the seed, the offspring of Seth. We're currently at the very beginning of that glorious storyline of redemption. In fact, Genesis 5 makes a massive contribution to the beginning of that storyline that's centered on Jesus by giving us the second genealogy in the Bible, but the first genealogy centered on the seed of the woman. That's what makes Genesis 5 so very vital for us. So at the very beginning of this section, we see the generation of Adam. Notice with me in verse 1. Now we're not going to uh, completely leave verse 1. We're going to come back to it later, but just remember that line. This is the book of the generations of Adam. It's the exact same language you'll see in chapter 2, verse 4, which is speaking of creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So I think Moses is intentionally using the same language because what we're going to see is after the fall, God is going to continue to stay committed to his creation, but in the context of redemption. So this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Two genders, you don't get to choose your gender. God gives you your gender. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Well, notice in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So what this is telling us, this is affirming that even after sin entered the world, after the fall where Adam and Eve sinned, the image, though it's now distorted, is still there. We still image God. We're still the image of God. It's not gone. And so it says, when Adam, he fathered a son in his likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. And maybe you have a footnote there. Seth's name means appointed one. Um, and so, uh, verse 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth, the appointed one. Now, why do you think he's named the appointed one? Because it's going to be through Seth's line that the seed of the woman will come. So he fathered Seth, and his days after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, I think that it's telling here that of all of the other sons and daughters that Adam had, he only named Seth. Why is that? Is it because Seth is just better than all the others? No, Seth is the appointed one. This is where you have the beginning of the offspring, the seed that will find its fulfillment in, in Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the Cain line, we read about the Cain line last week, Genesis 4. It's become irrelevant at this point. As much as they prospered, it's irrelevant 
in the Bible at this point. And Seth's line will become the theme of redemptive history. Well, that brings us uh, to verse 5. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, one of the notable things in this genealogy is that even though we're reading in Genesis 5 about the righteous line, death is still reigning. Death is still very much alive and reigning. With that phrase, and he died, we're going to see it eight times in Genesis 5. And he died. Moses is intending us to remember this is not the way God created things to be. And he died, and he died, and he died. Charles Spurgeon once preached a sermon that he titled Memento Mori that reminds me of, of this text. Uh, in, in the Middle Ages, uh, you had a, a lot of the, the, the well-to-do people, people of prominence, who, who would keep a skull on their desk to remind them that they, like that victim, would one day die. And, and that skull was called a memento mori. In other words, the reminder of death. Don't be too impressed with yourself. This is going to be your fate. Well, I think our passage is a memento mori even for the righteous. Because this is the righteous line, and yet they die, they die, they die. Well, that brings us to uh, the genealogy from Seth to Enoch. Notice we in verse 16. We're going to go through this pretty quickly, and then we'll get to our point. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 9, when Enosh had lived 30 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 12, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years. And he died. I think part of the, the length of their life is to remind us that God intended us to live long on the earth. And yet even the best after the fall ends up in death. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he, fa he fathered Jared. Mahalalel, that name so found so often here lived after he had fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, notice, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. I rushed through those because we're going to get to a very central name here in Enoch. But I want you to notice these are very brief outlines of righteous people. Very brief. There's no full biographies. No full biographies in this passage. Even with Enoch and Lamech at the end, which you have the longest descriptions, little is told to us. 
And I think that's making a point. In the end, the only thing that mattered was that they were from the line of Seth. That's the only thing that mattered. That's what's important. You know, it's so easy, especially uh, all of us get busy uh, and real busy at that. And our lives are filled with busyness. But what will ultimately matter? These people, I'm sure, were busy as well, but we don't read about the busyness. It's interesting that in, in each of these cases, all we're told is who they were, how long they lived, and that they had children from the godly line, people of faith, and they died. That's all it tells us. All the record of the events of their lives, those things that we get so caught up in and stressed out over, are forgotten, except they were people of faith. That's all that matters in this genealogy. All the other things that they were caught up in are irrelevant in this genealogy. They were people of faith. And I think that should put perspective uh, where the focus of our energies uh, should be as believers. But as well, I want you to note this godly line is parallel to the ungodly line in Genesis 4. It's easy for us to develop an Elijah syndrome and think we're the only righteous, we're the only believers. And maybe in your workplace or in your neighborhood or perhaps even in your family, you may be the only believer. And here this passage is reminding, reminding us that God always has a people. Even in the city of man, God always has a people. And in the end... They're the only ones who will be standing. Indeed, in chapter 4, we're told about the line of Cain, but in the godly line, Cain and his family are never mentioned. They're not mentioned again, even though they were the inventors of culture. They were the inventors of civilization and industry and music and tools and everything else. Derek Kidner, the great commentator, says something quite haunting about them. It says, in the history of salvation, the family of Cain is an irrelevance. In the history of salvation, the family of Cain is an irrelevance. Just remind us, those that you see prospering in the city of man, if they are not of faith, it will be ultimately irrelevant in the end, no matter how many trophies they might attain. Psalm 62 says those who are of high estate are a delusion. It's a delusion to be of high estate in this world. Well, notice in verse 19, Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered, now you probably know this name. Uh, some of you may have been called this before, Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. So this is the first, and we're going to come back to Methuselah in just a second, but this is the first of two times that it says that Enoch walked with God. That would be great to have on your tombstone. 
He walked with God. Now, this verb has often been used in the scriptures to mean communion. That is to commune. So you could literally say that Enoch communed with God as a habit, a manner of life. What's interesting is the New Testament says more about Enoch than even the Old Testament does. It's quite remarkable. Um, I read this in a commentary. I didn't count it. But there are 90 words in the New Testament speaking about Enoch. And only 50 words in the Old Testament speaking about Enoch. So Enoch made an impression on the New Testament writers. So for instance, Jude verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Incidentally, that word prophesied just literally means to preach. He was the first preacher in the Bible. Enoch is the first preacher in the Bible. He prophesied. It tells us, and saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Note what he preached in a, in a, in a, in a time where so many pulpits are seeker-driven. Notice what he preached, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. So we get a picture here of what the first preacher in the Bible preached. He preached judgment, and he called the ungodly to repentance. Now, why does Jude here refer to Enoch as the seventh from Adam? Well, first of all, he's contrasting him with the seventh generation of Cain. Who was that? You remember? Lamech. And so Lamech represented in the line of Cain the height of ungodliness. He's the first polygamist. Uh, he is a brutal, abusive, uh, vengeful man. He is the height of ungodliness in the line of Cain. But notice in the line of Seth, the seventh in that line, this is Enoch, the first preacher the preacher of judgment and righteousness. But the second reason I think that he's distinguishing his Enoch is because the line of Cain had an Enoch as well. And so you have two Enochs not to be confused. If you'll remember, Enoch in chapter 4 was the son of Cain. And so he's third generation uh, from Adam. So God has his Enoch. The city of God has his Enoch. And the city of man has its Enoch. Indeed, the scripture deems the second Enoch to be greater than the first Enoch. Now, why do I make that point? Because last week, if you'll remember, the first Enoch had a city named after him. If you and I met someone who had a city named after them, it'd be pretty impressive. I'd probably want their autograph to meet someone that had a city named after them. And the scripture's telling us that's not impressive. What is impressive is that this man walked with God and he preached righteousness. Um, Jude also informs us that not only did he preach coming judgment, and we're going to get to that, he denounced the ungodliness in the culture. That does not make you popular in the city of man. But Enoch 
walked with God. And that was just his impulse. In fact, get this. It is believed by many scholars that Methuselah, remember Methuselah is Enoch's son. By the way, Methuselah is Noah's grandfather. But Methuselah, it is believed his name represents a prophecy that was given to Enoch. Remember, Jude says he was a prophet. He prophesied. And that prophecy uh, was of the coming destruction that was coming on the earth that we will learn will be a flood. So where do we get that? Well, um, his name, Methuselah, is taken by many to mean this. When he is dead, it shall come. When he is dead, it shall come. That is, his name is made up of two verbs. The first, muth, meaning to die or dead. And shalah, meaning sent. And so, Matthew Henry, along with others, translates it this way. He dies, ascending forth. Or, when he's dead, it shall come. What's it? What is it that will come? Well, um, this likely means that when Methuselah was born, Enoch was given a revelation from God at the time of Methuselah's birth that when Methuselah died, the flood would come on the earth. All right? When Methuselah dies, the flood will come on the earth. And so God, in this particular understanding of this passage, tells Enoch that the, the flood is coming after the death of Methuselah. And so while Methuselah lived, and by the way, he lived longer than anyone else in the history of the world. Why do you think that's the case? It's not arbitrary. He lived the longest because it represents God's patience. It represents God's forbearance with sinners. As long as he was alive, judgment wouldn't come. But after Methuselah dies, the judgment will come on the earth through the flood. And so the flood was held back while Methuselah lived. And he lived, and he lived, and he lived. But when he died, judgment fail. I tend to think that that's, that's the case. In other words, his longevity was not an accident. It was the time of God's patience. And, and it's interesting as well the number of times Enoch in Jude uses the name or the word ungodly. Uh, so there's 28 words in his sermon, and uh, four of those he uses the word ungodly. And here's the point. Uh, this is connected to the fact that he walked with God. So the text seems to say, if you'll, if you'll note again in verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. But notice in verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. And so what the text seems to be saying here is that this walk went deeper after he had received this prophecy upon Methuselah's uh, birth. And he would have received this revelation that came to him of coming judgment. 
And so he knew that it was coming. And so in light of the promise of the seed and the coming judgment, he walked with God. That's why it's important that we preach on judgment. And the, the judgment reminds us of the need for a Savior and of a Messiah. Well, notice in verse 23, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Again, Enoch walked with God. Now, what does it mean to walk with God? Well, listen to Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry, who says to walk with God is to set him before us and to act as if we were always under his eye. It is to make God's word our rule and his glory our end in all our actions. It is to make it our constant care and endeavor in everything to please God. And so the more Enoch was aware of judgment, the more he was sensitive to sin. The more he was sensitive to sin, the closer he walked with God. That's how it works. And so the closer he walked with God, the more necessary he saw the judgment was coming. And Hebrews 11.5 also refers to Enoch in that chapter on the heroes of faith. In particular, uh, in reference to the last statement here in verse 24. Notice it, the second part of verse 24. And he was not, for God took him. Now what does that mean? And he was not, for God took him. Well, Hebrews 11 tells us this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. That's the commendation we should all seek. Don't seek mankind's commendation. It's so volatile. It's based on works, right? Seek God's condemnation. It's based on grace. Now, this one exception here in this text to the reign of death in, in Genesis is, I think, intended to provide us a ray of hope, as if to say, death is not the final word for the believer. We don't know how it happened, but and it certainly doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner. Enoch was a sinner just like everyone else was a sinner. But it's a coming attraction for the hope for those, especially when Christ returns. And there will be no death for those, who, uh, for those when Christ returns in glory. Well, that brings us to the final part of this passage from Methuselah to Noah. Now, Noah, you know, uh, even from your kids' stories, how important Noah is. By the way, uh, I've titled this sermon, From the Appointed One to Rest. Seth means appointed one, and Noah's name means rest, okay? So look with me in verse 25. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. I mean, based on his age, Methuselah's having children as a teenager, and he's 187. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Methuselah even died. Uh, and so the record of Methuselah living longer than anyone else I think is interesting. Of course, everyone lived longer before the flood than after the flood. And it's, we can only speculate why. Text doesn't tell us. It's likely 
based on scholars that I've read, the conditions on the earth were different in the pre-flood times. Conditions changed after the flood. And so elements such as climate and, and weather may have affected longevity. That's as far as we can, we can say. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. We do know that the one who wrote about these long years also writes about the shorter lives after the flood. And so certainly the lives before the flood were longer. And it was probably also for the purpose of multiplication. Uh, as they had longer lives, they had more children, had more time to have children. We're just not sure. But what is very clear is that Enoch, and this is every man's role, wives as well, mothers as well, but the spiritual leader of the home is the father. Enoch had passed his faith to Methuselah and to Lamech. Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief um, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so again, Noah's name means rest. And so Lamech seems to uh, be aware that, he, that, that this curse is very painful on creation and on the image bearers, but the curse is not the final word. So why would he name his son Rest? Because he believes that through this line, starting with Seth, the appointed one, God is going to bring rest. He's going to bring rest. And we know how he's going to do that. And, and then notice in verse 30, Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. So it will be said of Noah in chapter 6, verse 9, that like his great-grandfather, he walked with God. Okay? Verse 31. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And after Noah was five years, 500 years old, we're setting up here the narrative on Noah and the flood. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we, uh, we just don't know what those names mean. We would be speculating. So it really doesn't matter for us not to know what these names mean. But what's interesting is that both genealogies, Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, ends with the, the name, a person named Lamech. And so Lamech from Canaan's line had two wives and four sons. Uh, the Lamech from Seth's line has several children, but only one is named, and his name is Noah. And so the, the Lamech from Cain's line brags about vengeance. He stresses his own importance. The Lamech of Seth, he reflects a burden by the naming of his son and the hope of a Savior. Rest. We need rest. Of the first Lamech's sons, we read of their great inventions, all right? Of the second Lamech, we read that Noah walked with God. The inventors, by the way, are going to die in the flood. They're going to die in the flood. Again, what is Scripture doing? It's, it's reminding us of what is of most high priority for the people of God.
But Lamech's hope for, for relief and rest, let's close here, will not be realized in his son Noah. Noah will be a type. Noah will be a, a foreshadowing. But we're going to see Noah himself needs rest. Uh, he, he needs a Savior himself. Noah does some pretty vile things, as we will see. He will not bring rest. It will be the one who descends from Noah, as we see in Luke chapter 3, verse 36. It will be the one who descends from Noah many generations later who will say, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will offer that rest, but in order for him to offer that rest, he's going to have to reverse the curse on the creation. Reverse the curse on sinful humankind. How will he do that? He will become a curse for us. What a beginning to this glorious storyline. Let me tell you someone else who knew about this storyline, Matthew. Let me close here um, with the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. Uh, at the very beginning of Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 1, here's what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That is the exact phrase found in Genesis 2-4, speaking of creation, and in Genesis 5-1, speaking about the promise of the new creation through the line of Seth. That's how Matthew begins his gospel, and then he commences to give us a genealogy of Jesus Christ. In other words, this genealogy we read here finds its fulfillment in the Son of God. Matthew says that in Jesus Christ, we have the new beginning initiated by Seth, the appointed one. In other words, Matthew is giving us a record of the new Genesis age introduced by the coming of Jesus. Indeed, this is a storyline that has no contradictions. It's one that could only be written by God himself. And that's, I just want you to understand that. We, as the people of God, have a glorious heritage. Uh, Jesus, the thought of Jesus, didn't occur in Matthew 1. We see it taking us all the way back to the very beginning of the story of redemption. A large part we find in Genesis chapter 5. We have so much to be grateful for. So we have one we can trust, one that can, we can believe in, one that we can set our hopes on. This is the story of the ages. It's also a story that if you don't yet believe, you can come to believe tonight. So as Adam comes forward um, and our musicians, um, the reality is you start seeing in Genesis 5, actually all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that God has one plan for salvation. And that plan is centered on the greater Seth, the greater appointed one, the greater Noah, the greater rest. And if you don't have that rest tonight, you can have it. All you have to do is come to him. If you are heavy laden and you are laboring and you are struggling in your sin, come to the one who offers that rest. Repent of your sins and trust in him. Won't you come as we stand? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. 
And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.